Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bible this morning and open to the letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. Last week, we began uh, a two-part series uh, drawn from this passage, a passage that shapes our series as much as anything, verses 15 through 17. Last week, I started talking about biblical sexuality and gender, and today will be part two of that. Last week, we looked at a biblical foundation. Today, we will look toward a faithful gospel Witness. If you were not with us last week or if you've forgotten since then, let me make a couple of brief reminders. Uh, on my website, mlaneharrison.com, you will find um, uh, both a video of the sermon from each week and the post. You will also find uh, a full manuscript of the sermon itself. And due to time, I don't have time to cite every reference and that kind of thing, but those are in the manuscripts. You can see the resources that I'm drawing from. As well, there is another post that has a full bibliography on it, and you can see if you see a resource you're interested in, you can go find that. There are some limited resources on the resource wall in the North Community Room. We commend those to you. Uh, and the resources that we're offering cover a much broader scope of the topic than just what we're addressing in the message. All right. Well, let's go to the text. I want to begin by reading 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 17 uh, before we continue. Peter writes to the Christians of the first century, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. This passage exhorts us to biblical fidelity, or fidelity in biblical truth, but it also exhorts us to a faithfulness in our witness and mission. And that's the aim of our two-part series last week, beginning with the biblical foundation, this week moving towards a faithful witness. And what I want to do today is pick up this morning where I left off last week in the sermon as I introduce to you the narrow topic that we're considering of gender dysphoria and transgenderism. And so I want to begin with this as we move then back to the text that will form our witness for today. Gender dysphoria is a phrase that is used to reduce the stigma from the disorder known as gender identity disorder. Gender dysphoria is a feeling-based concept for how one psychologically perceives self as masculine or feminine. Dysphoria arises when what is felt is in seeming contradiction to their biological sex. When gender dysphoria and transgenderism, uh, while they must be discussed together, we recognize they are not the same. And therefore, not every situation must be treated the same way. As Christians, we do not deny that people experience gender dysphoria. 
but we do hold that gender is determined at birth by biology and is not assigned as birth. At a time later, we'll look at, and neither is it assigned at a time after birth by preference or choice. Therefore, we reject both because of the doctrines of our faith, but also the findings of science, we reject the demand that every person who experiences dysphoria be placed under the ideology and the methodology of transgenderism as the only right response. Christians recognize, and I quote, soul and body are God's good creation designed to complement each other. When people claim to have a soul of one gender trapped in a body of another gender, they're making a false claim based on an inadequate understanding of Christian anthropology. For people experiencing gender dysphoria, it's more accurate to say, I am male made in the image of God with body and soul, but I am experiencing confused feelings about my gender right now. End of quote. We acknowledge that there are biological factors home environment, past experiences, and even human volition that all contribute to gender dysphoria. And for those who struggle with gender dysphoria, we clearly want to say we will neither shame nor shun them. Christians must open our arms to love and to walk with those who struggle with gender dysphoria. But we walk in the light of God's truth and not in the darkness of transgenderism's lie. And so understanding gender dysphoria is the beginning to distinguish between that and transgenderism, which is a different kind of delusion. Transgenderism, as defined on the American Psychological Association website, states, it is an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, expression, or behavior does not conform to that typically associated with their sex assigned at birth. Again, I have you note that phrase, sex assigned at birth. You see, the definition is the problem because assigned at birth always leads to gender identity as becoming the basis for that person's sex. The truth is this, and I quote, no one has yet discovered a transgender gene, nor have any genetic or epigenetic factors been discovered both necessary and sufficient to cause transgenderism. Even policies and curriculum being driven through institutions today are not based in scientific studies. Rather, they're based on personal declarations without source substantiation. Transgender activists demand this, that the internal sense or feeling of an individual must become the accepted norm and everything and everyone must form their reality by that internal sense. Now let me clarify from the beginning. I'll say it once, I ought to say it more, but I just don't have time to get through it all if I do. Not all who even claim to be transgender agree with the ideology and methodology of the transgender activists. I want you to understand that. But you can't cover every potential situation in our time together. What I'm talking about today is specifically the methodology and the practices of transgender activists that are most seeking to impact our culture in a myriad of fields today. 
And the question that we're addressing is, how do Christians stand on God's truth to bear a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so I want you to see today that Christians honor Jesus as Lord through a faithful witness to the glory of God's design in biblical sexuality. That's the big picture of what we are aiming at today. And in order to form that faithful gospel witness, I want us to look at three areas of focus that are most important for us today. Three areas of focus. Area number one is what I call a redemptive narrative. A redemptive narrative. Now, this is contrasted against transgenderism's narrative, which we've already looked at a little bit, but I'll bring it in to specifics towards the end of this first focus area. A Christian's redemptive narrative begins at creation and stays focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. Those are your two critical points. The biblical foundation that we looked at last week is found in Genesis 1 and 2, and that anchors God's design and his plan for humanity. When we move to Genesis 3, it reveals for us the root of the problem as sin. And as acknowledged, not every person nor every person involved, or excuse me, not every aspect nor every person involved is directly in what the Bible would consider sin. But sin is the root problem because it perverts and it skews God's creational design. And denying God will always lead to avoiding of the cross to subvert redemption. That's important for us, friends, especially when we look at our response. Once we understand the root problem, several passages shape a Christian's response. First of all, we move to the third chapter of Genesis and we see where Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it tells us that their first response was to recognize they were naked. It shocked them. They had always been naked, but for now they recognized their nakedness. We see this in contrast to the last verse of chapter 2, which when God made them one, he said they were both naked and unashamed. There was not a problem with their nakedness before they sinned. But as soon as they sinned, their first response was to see their nakedness and recognize a problem with it. Scholars say that this indicates a sex consciousness that is associated with the shame and the guilt before God because of their sin. Romans 1 tells us this in further explanation, that sexual immorality of every form is a distinctive trait of idolatry and it is the primary activity of one who is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Let me read these verses to you. And as I do, I want you to listen for the progression from participation to deeper indulgence and what it leads to. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. I pick up there in the middle of 23, and I skip to 24. Therefore, because of this, it says, 
God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of righteousness. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He gave them up to the dishonorable passions. He gave them up to a debased mind. Romans 1 reveals what happens when God is not rightly worshipped. And the more one worships false idols, the more that person becomes like and their life is shaped by that false idol. Because this leads to this, that God gives them up to the lust of hearts, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind, where what not ought to be done becomes the very thing that is done. This is the progression, the progression of what I would call sin's damnation from which shame and guilt result. And I would even argue we see it is proportionate to the very destruction of the individual by their indulgence within it. This is not to say that every person follows the same path nor moves to the same extreme. It does teach, however, that when we encounter wickedness, we know the root and we know how one gets there. Some people are affected because of personal participation, whether it's through tolerance, entertainment test, entertaining the ideas and the practices, testing them out for themselves, or full indulgence. But many others are affected because they are influenced by a broader brokenness in the world. And oftentimes, even the influence of that moves them to personal participation. And while other sins are included in this passage, I don't want to deny those. As I said last week, all sexual immorality, all sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage falls under the label of sexual immorality. But I don't have time to cover it all today. I'm going to have trouble covering what we're trying to dial in on today. So I want, you to, I want to acknowledge that to you. While other sins are included, the emphasis in this passage is clearly placed on the progression into perversity to the extremity of sexual immorality. God created our bodies to glorify him in his design and in his plan for sexuality. All sexual immorality dishonors God and it darkens the mind against the things of God. And the longer and the further one walks in that darkness, the more debased and damaged it becomes, even to their body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13 through 20 teach us that sexuality is what joins the soul and the body, what joins the inner person to the physical person. And by God's design, sexual activity joins the soul of one to another 
and sexual immorality wreaks the greatest condemnation against the one who indulges in it. Sexual immorality darkens the mind so that not even physical pain can numb the discord created by the denial of God. That's why we see so many of the physical ramifications that transpire when one is locked under this darkness. Transgender treatments afflict a permanent damage to a temporary pseudo-problem. That's what we'll argue for today. The key to this first area of maintaining a redemptive narrative is this, that when Christians hold a redemptive narrative, it always leads to the cross of Jesus Christ. And hear me, friends, there is no sin that is not covered in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Be clear it is a sin. Be clear he will forgive and cleanse from it. And that is what shapes the Christian narrative to remain in a redemptive trajectory. When we trust Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing from sin by his sacrificial atonement, his Holy Spirit dwells within us to empower us in the light with which he leads us to walk. And as we walk in the light of truth, he renews the mind. And as he renews the mind, he brings transformation to life. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 tells us, I quote, scientific evidence to date clearly does not show the existence of a gene or genes that cause transgenderism. Only the lowest level of correlation, end of quote. Friends, the born this way argument is not only a lie, it is inconsistent with scientific research. The Christian view is far more robust in describing and getting to the heart of the issues. And it is this. It suggests that transgenderism emerges from a complex matrix of factors, including one's genetics, family of origin, environment, their response to stress, their response to temptation, and perhaps many other factors that remain unknown to us. Therefore, the first field in which we form our Christian witness is to maintain a redemptive narrative because God wants to forgive and cleanse from all sin. It is the heart of God to restore wholeness to the whole person, to renew the mind and to bring transformation of being. But the transgender activist ideology and methodology has invaded every sector of society, friends, I'm going to address three specific fields and I'm going to do it in very short fashion because of limited time. But the first field I think it's important for us to understand really addresses the whole issue that I keep hearing from people. How in the world did we get here? Let us not be naive about this. Let us not wake up and go, how did this happen? As if we didn't know it was coming. Beginning in 2010, the Obama administration pushed gender identity policies under the auspices of civil rights. Since then, every department at the government level has methodically pushed the agenda through mandates, not laws, mandates. 
And I'm telling you, this very issue is eroding the constitutional republic in which we live because we are no longer living under laws established by the legislative process, but we're living under mandates that are laid down by executive order. This is a bad practice, and this is why every time the administrations change, the the executive orders double because they have to undo what was done. That is not the way America is orchestrated and administrated. And as citizens, we need to understand this. It's a bad practice on both sides of the aisle. But that's the way we're ruled today. And fast forwarding through a whole lot of other details, we're faced with the Equality Act yet again today, which is Congress is considering it. And the Equality Act seeks to move the ball further down the field by making gender identity a protected minority class. And friends, if you're not aware of this, I'm going to talk about language here in a moment. They're already relabeling pedophilia. You hear me? That's what this is. Now they want them to be known as minor attracted people because that's not nearly as offensive as pedophilia. Just this week, September 19th, the New York Post ran an article on the state of Montana that has been forced in the courts to temporarily allow the changing of gender on birth certificates because of a technicality in the law. I move next to the field of medicine and healthcare. Again, a very brief synopsis with only the most pointed of illustrations. John Hopkins is likely the best known origin in this debate due to the doctors that have served there. Two infamous names you will hear about is one doctor, John Money, who began to to pushed these agendas in the medical field back in the 60s, but also Dr. Paul McHugh, who is a psychologist who held the highest chair in the Department of Psychology for John Hopkins until 2015 when he was removed from that chair and demoted because he would not identify with their ideology and he maintained that transgenderism was a mental illness. He lost his job over it is basically what I'm saying. Transgender ideology promotes a four-stage treatment plan that once a child, and I quote, identifies as an opposite sex in a manner consistent, persistent, and insistent, the only appropriate response is to support that identification, end of quote. What does that mean? Here's the four-stage treatment plan that they propose and mandate. A new wardrobe, new pronouns, and treatment uh, of that child as their new identity is immediately mandated. Secondly, prior to puberty, if possible, they begin to administer and prescribe puberty blockers to subvert puberty. Understand this, that wreaks irreversible damage upon a child. You don't undo what puberty blockers do. Number three, a 16 year, at the age or around the age of 16, cross-sex hormones can begin to be administered to that individual to take away their natural biological gender distinctives of body and to begin to transform that body, move that body chemically towards the cross-sex. And third, at around age 18, sex reassignment surgery can be administered. Friends, psychology 
is ruling the ideology to suppress and counter factual biology. I could also say insanity is ruling the ideology. Transgender science is rooted in personal declarations that are without source to prove their claims. The third field that I move to is the field of education. Education at every level is overrun by transgender ideology, both in curriculum and in policy. The nation's largest teacher union, the National Education Association, partnered with LGBTQ orgs to, or organizations uh, to develop school guidelines. And they are explained in Ryan Anderson's When Harry Became Sally in this way, and I quote, The NEA endorses activist view that transgender identities are a healthy and normal aspect of human development, that children should always be encouraged to act in ways consistent with self-identification, that any attempt to help a child feel more comfortable in his or her own body is unethical and likely to be harmful, that all this applies to very, even to very young children and the mentally disabled children, and that religious beliefs and religious liberty rights of parents and teachers don't matter. Well, if I don't have your attention now, I'm not going to get it. This is far beyond serious. Let me introduce you to the curriculum they're using to introduce transgender ideology as a curriculum, fact-based in our schools. Meet the genderbred person and the gender unicorn. The genderbred person was initially uh, created to begin to instruct and to teach transgenderism to children. But they stopped using the genderbred person because it looked too much like, well, a real person. So they created the gender unicorn. Now pay close attention to this. Here's the reality of it. When the activists want to teach reality about transgenderism, they stopped using a character that looked too real and opted rather to replace it to define reality with a unicorn. How very accurate this is. They want to define transgenderism by a fictitious being vested in the immature imagination of an unrealistic existence that in fact does not exist. We are not dealing with sane people. We are dealing with people that love the darkness in which they walk and they demand that you walk in it as well. Transgenderism in education also leads to what I would consider a far broader and even more vile evil, the violation of parental rights in activist policy. I quote, transgender activists believe that schools should conceal from parents who do not embrace transgender ideology the fact that their child is identifying as transgender. The guidelines give advice on how to use a student's preferred name and pronouns in class. But the legal name and normal sex-specific pronouns in communication with parents to hide their child's social transition. End of quote. Might I present to you 
that the very people who want to label bullying as a bad thing actually purport bullying as their principal tactic to enforce the mandation of their ideology. And if that's not enough, if you look at the way that they teach teachers and authorities in our schools to do this, they are grooming our children for abuse. Look up grooming on Google. And then look this up and see if line for line, the ideology and the philosophies they mandate are not classical grooming, what we would otherwise put in prison. I believe this parental authority issue to be the most dangerous tactic in education. And let me say this, it is not the law. It is not the law. It is wicked to usurp and undermine parental rights and it contradicts scripture. And listen, friends, I am understating the case here. I want you to understand that. You can go to the Alliance Defending Freedom website. There have already been court cases where teachers have testified that from their administration, they were made to use during school hours secret lists that parents were not given and were not knowledgeable about that used the preferred pronouns of the children under their care to embrace and encourage the ideology. All the while, when they had parent-teacher conferences, they were to use the second list, which was a public list, which the parents were made to believe was the only list. That's already gone through the courts. Schools lost that one. Actually, they settled out of court, so a final decision wouldn't be made. Just a few weeks ago, Columbia, Missouri was awarded uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to create a closet in their high school so that students who were identifying as the opposite sex could participate in cross-dressing and support and encourage and further their transgenderism with or without their parents' knowledge. And the teachers were not required to tell the parents. As a matter of fact, when the counsel, when they came into the counselor's office or they talked to a teacher about this, many times they are forbidden to mention it. Grooming. You need to understand how this is being used to abuse and damage children and to confront and oppose it wherever and whenever you encounter it. They want to tell you you have no say in this. That's a lie. This is not law, this is being mandated. And I'd say to you this, make clear with your school's teacher, your child's teacher rather, administrators, and, and, and really go to the board and tell them, you will not accept nor tolerate this. For now, there is precedent before the U.S. Supreme Court that sides with parents. That's a direct quote from an attorney out of Kansas City who works with the Alliance Defending Freedom and has argued many successful cases in front of the Supreme Court. His words are this, but silence by parents will change this. You know why they settle out of court so frequently? Because they are finding the weak point until they can get the courts to establish different precedents and then it will be like the small crack in the dam, the water will burst. Be clear in your mind about this. Teachers are not immediately to blame. They may or they may not agree with this. 
But friends, once these policies are being adopted, teachers come under the most severe pressure even to oppose their own conscience. And they are as much victims in this as the students themselves. If you know a teacher, their name ought to be lifting up from your lips every time you're on your knees before the Lord. I would say the same for anyone in any of these fields, physicians, politicians. Christians in public schools need to put the regular school board meeting on their calendar and start asking questions. But let me tell you something, friends. This isn't a public school versus private school versus home school issue. So don't let it go there. They know their easiest target will be the public schools. But don't think you're safe. They will come for you. They will make you illegal. They're already, listen, they're already calling child protective services on parents who don't agree. And if they voice any opposition to a child's desire for transgender or even gender dysphoria, they will call child protective services on you for the abuse in your home. These are all documented court cases, not making any of it up. The second area of focus is this. It's the area of truth and identity. To stand on the truth of what God says. Christians focus on the truth because we are people of truth. God is truth. We always pursue truth. We never fear truth. We never fear understanding truth because God's word is truth. And all truth we understand is his. This is why we begin with the creation narrative. To understand the situation and to approach treatments for it. The reality is that of gender dysphoria and transgender people's lives are being destroyed and being destroyed in a way that there is no turning back from. I quote, their claims are inherently confused. They are filled with internal contradictions and philosophically incoherent. The heart of the issue is the denial of the truth in the gender differences. And the perspective that denies reality in gender differences is often sourced from the same people that invented the unicorn to teach reality instead. But no one will ever know any difference if no one tells the truth. That's why Christians must stand on the truth. The most loving thing you can do is be faithful to the truth of God's word in both your speech and your action. Trans activism propagates tactics to bully parents and to conjure up fear. One of their first responses to parents is this. Your child will commit suicide if you oppose their feelings. That is a lie. That is a lie. What they don't want you to know is that statistics show, and I quote, depression, psychosis, and suicide occur frequently both before and after therapy. And... There are effective therapies to help children with gender dysphoria. But the most convincing is this. I'm still quoting. 80 to 95% do not persist in transgender identity. End of quote. This statistic is the position of which all competent authorities agree. And testimony in the U.S. Supreme Court records from 2017 from a case involving gender identity policies in school. The whole transgender agenda depends on a lie, on a lie. Truth defines a person's identity. Christians hold to good and to true science. 
Science is not the enemy, friends, of Christianity. Gender identity is biologically determined and immutable. Christians hold that at conception, life begins and sex and gender is determined. We do not embrace their narrative. We do not believe their lies, nor do we propagate their deception. I quote, a Christian stance towards transgenderism will distinguish between someone who experiences gender dysphoria and someone who embraces a transgender identity. I experience gender dysphoria is naming a problem. I am transgender is embracing an identity that's inconsistent with scripture. And our identity, listen to me, this goes for all sexual immorality and things that we've already acquiesced on far too abundantly in the church as a whole. Identity is never rooted in our sin. Therefore, your sin should not be the adjective to your identity. Are you tracking with me? I don't have time to say more about that. Sin is rooted in the object of our worship. When we worship false idols, as Roman 1 has explained, we become identified with them. When we are redeemed through Jesus Christ, we are set free from sin and no longer defined nor identified by it. I quote, we believe sexual attractions or other subjective psychological feelings do not define a person. Rather, every person is defined by their immutable inborn biological sex, which is present and identifiable in the DNA of every cell in the human body. We believe our bodies are part of God's creation, including our gender as maleness and femaleness. While it's certainly true some people identify very strongly as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or another identity and act according to this identity, this behavior does not define them. Rather, the divinely intended purpose of human sexuality is inherently present in the complementarity of male and female sex as created by God and described in Genesis 1, end of quote. According to the Bible... In God's eyes, a person may struggle with gender dysphoria, but there is no such thing as transgenderism. Science really does establish the truth about sex and gender for us, but the claims made by activists are not based in science, rather personal declarations. And as Ryan Anderson, the author of When Harry Became Sally, the only book that's been banned by Amazon, he states it this way in summarization, Politics now rule the debate. And in, cl- in case you've been squeamish about this in the last number of years, let me just do a sidebar here and remind you, this is why your vote is critical every election. In sexual sin, the darker the mind, the greater the damage to the body. When we deny God and seek to make man into God, we'll always objectify and ultimately mutilate that which is the glory of man to construct a new image of God and to advance our idolatry. We are called to show the love of Jesus to a world, to the world. But how we do and how we accomplish this when the culture is upending in fundamental categories of gender, how do we do this? Well, a love for the lost certainly means we must speak with mercy and kindness but also fidelity to God means we must speak the truth, even if it is painful or unpopular. 
And hence, our text has already told us this. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. First and foremost, because we are addressing the darkened and debased mindset that can only be changed by the light and the power of God's truth. And when you encounter the activist, friends, you too will be convinced the bowels of hell have opened and are flowing freely. Christians stand on truth. The third focus area, and I'll be brief, or than I want to, our speech and language. Let the speech you use reflect the truth. There's a reason they've created a new vocabulary that is ever-changing. Language is their principal strategy by which activists demand conformity. A new and ever-shifting vocabulary has emerged to force others to adopt their ideology by demanding acceptance of their terminology. By deconstructing languages, activists seek to change the way people think and talk about gender and thus ostracize people who affirm the gender binary of male and female. The first thing that you will be called if you reject this is bigot. That's the acceptable response to those who go, I do not agree. And once labeled a bigot, they can quarantine you into a section and annihilate you from within. Christians do not participate in language that affirms transgenderism because words give meaning to life and we receive meaning from God's words. Words matter because they both represent and assign meaning to life. When you entertain, accept, or participate in transgender language, you give tolerance and affirmation, even credibility and indulgence to the darkening of the mind and the denial of God. This darkens your mind by participation, even if you silently disagree, and it ultimately leads to deception by participation. Friends, you never show love and you never show genuine, helpful support for a person by using language that affirms them in their sin, regardless of any claim. And let me bring this back to the most important field, the field of religion and the church today. I don't care how much a person likes you and you want to build a relationship with them that you can then turn the tables and maybe have a chance to introduce the gospel to them if you you have not stood on the truth of God's word in the building of that relationship, you will be ostracized even more vehemently because of your strategy. The church will not win the world by subverting the gospel of Jesus Christ first and trying to get people to like us and then telling them the truth. That is a debased mindset about Christianity. That permeates the church. You don't have to be a jerk, nor should you be. That's the point we're making here. But you need to tell the truth. It's important to understand their terms. Even more critical, we acquiesce, not acquiesce to their vocabulary in our usage, in our definition, or our meanings. Do not use their vocabulary, do not acquiesce to their labels. Do not use their preferred pronouns, which is the typical way most people first encounter the issue. As experts are telling us now, the best practice is to strictly use what is on their birth certificate or their pronoun of their natal sex 
if possible. But as we've already seen, as news out of Montana says, even having a copy of their birth certificate may not long be a legitimate form of identification. They're trying to change reality by mandating language. And when you treat a lie as though it's true, you become the one deceived. And you deceive others. And you encourage others to practice deception. Christians insist on telling the truth and preventing lives from irreparable damage. So with these three areas of focus that form our witness, I return to 1 Peter. The end of verse 15 says, Do it with gentleness and respect. Every person in the world, no matter how vitriolic or aggressive they are in actions toward you, no matter how threatening they are, every person deserves dignity because God gave it to them when he created it. No matter how much they've skewed it, do not forget this. The likelihood that you'll be able to respond in your first responsive reaction is very nil. Gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. Conscience before God. Before God. So that when you are slandered, not if, but when, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let your speech be seasoned and your spirit submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Form your witness by these areas of focus in showing true love from God for people. Friends, love is love is a lie. God is love. Every person with whom you speak deserves your respect. And when you speak in this way, You act in accordance with your conscience. I call that sleeping with both eyes closed at night. No matter how others respond, what they say, or what they attempt to do to you, it will not be your behavior ultimately that's put on display, but it'll be the truth of God's word. God will bear witness to them as he bears witness within you. You see, We have a mole on the inside of every person. It's God. Because within the life of every created human being, the imprint of the truth of God and a deep longing for Him exists. This is just a horrifically broken, dark expression trying to satisfy that hole that even statistics bear out will never work. Finally, remember this, because I know some of you are already under severe pressure. Hear me, friends. If you make a mistake, if you come to recognize you've acted wrongly in some response, in some statement, or even in the spirit with which you responded, don't sit in that self-pity. Don't sit in that self-pity. Repent to the Lord. Apologize clearly for what you're apologizing for, if necessary. Determine how you'll act next time and move on. I tell you, this is an ever-shifting ideology. Our methods for addressing it will have to remain that way as well. 
in all, trust the Lord and he will lead you. Do not give in to their fear-mongering tactics. Stand on the truth. Maintain a redemptive narrative. Make sure that your speech and your language represents the truth of God's word. Christians honor Jesus as Lord through a faithful witness to the glory of God's design in biblical sexuality.